Let's turn in our Bibles and begin by reading from the book of Mark, chapter 12. The book of Mark, chapter 12. Last Sunday, we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians approach the Lord Jesus with a loaded question. They are trying to entrap him in his talk, in his words. Uh, If you were here, you remember they failed miserably. And to put it simply, put it mildly, Jesus turns the tables on them, embarrasses them publicly, and certainly silences them. Now, in the verses we're going to read today, a new group appears. Uh, Not the Pharisees, not the Herodians, but the Sadducees. And this group of men approach the Lord Jesus. And uh, if, we, if we use our imagination and lean in closely, we can almost hear them uh, whisper to the Pharisees and the Herodians as they pass them by, you amateurs, uh, we'll show you how it's done. And now they come with a loaded question, seeking to entrap uh, the Lord Jesus in his words. And so follow along as I read our text. Again, we're in Mark chapter 12, uh, the 18th verse, and I'm going to read as far as verse 27. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, A man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The starting point, who are these Sadducees? Who are we talking about? I won't bore you with a prolonged answer. Let me give you the the shortened version, uh, simply as follows. The Sadducees are a prominent political group, a prominent political force within the nation of Israel. What we need to know of them is found in the text, because Mark gives us, in verse 18, one extremely noteworthy theological distinctive. He tells us right there, the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. So yes, they're a powerful political group, that's fine. We could go into their history, we won't take time and go down that road, What we really need to know, what is important, is that theological distinctive which Mark includes in the text. Again, right there in verse 18. They say that there is no 
resurrection. That lays the foundation for everything that follows through to verse 27 for this entire discussion. This discussion which consists of a question. The Sadducees come to Jesus with a question, a loaded question. They are seeking to trap him in his talk. They are seeking to discredit him before the people. They have a question, and then we have Christ's answer, his response. So let's deal with the question as it arises in verse 18. The first thing I want you to notice as we move into the 19th verse is this, that the Sadducees root, establish their question where? Right there at the outset of verse 19. In what Moses wrote. What did Moses write? They are referring to what we call the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible. So if we were to take the time and turn back into the Old Testament, right back to the start, you would find the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the books of, the law of, Moses. So that is what they appeal to, what Moses wrote. In particular, they have a text in mind. It is found in the book of Deuteronomy. And in that text, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, Moses passes a law. It's God's law. We need to remember that Israel is an agrarian society. And Israel, when they inherited the promised land, the land of Israel, the land was divided and allotted to each family. And God intended that the allotment of land would stay in the family. And so this law was introduced in Deuteronomy 25 to ensure that the allotment that each family inherited would pass on from generation to generation. And so in the case of a man who took a wife and married, but died before they could have any children, here is what was to happen. Uh, That man's brother was to marry his widow. He was to raise up offspring. The offspring would actually inherit the wife's first husband's allotment of land. That was the law that was instituted. That is the law that the Sadducees are appealing to. The book of Deuteronomy, what Moses wrote, we all know it. Now, based on what Moses wrote, that text, and they're perfectly right, they now develop this elaborate scheme, this this hypothetical situation, scenario. They said, look, here's the situation. There's a man, in accordance with, with what Moses wrote. He married a woman. They didn't have any children. He died. And so in accordance with the law, his brother married her, no children, he died. And so in accordance with the law, another brother married her, he died before they had any children. And on and on this went until seven brothers had actually been married to the same woman. Here's our question. We see it right in verse 23. In the resurrection. Now remember, these are men who do not believe in the resurrection. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. What are they doing? They are seeking to demonstrate the absurdity of the resurrection. And they are seeking to discredit the Lord Jesus before the people. Now remember, most of the Jews do believe in a coming resurrection. The Pharisees the chief rivals of the Sadducees, they certainly believe in a coming resurrection. And undoubtedly, they had argued many times, these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, over whether or not there was going to be a resurrection. And undoubtedly, this was an argument 
that the Sadducees employed on numerous occasions. And so as they would get into it and argue, is there a resurrection, isn't there a resurrection, the Sadducees in all likelihood would pull out this trump card and say, well, what about this scenario? Seven brothers married to the same woman in your so-called fanciful resurrection. Whose wife will she be? That is their question. Now, beginning in verse 24, and it wraps up in verse 27, we find the Lord Jesus' answer, his response. And what I want us to notice and, and not lose sight of in his response is that he sets it in what we call brackets, parentheses, or what we might call bookends. And, and, and the brackets, the parentheses, are a little phrase, a, a, a single statement. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? That introduces his answer. Now look at how he concludes his answer. The other bookend at the end of verse 27. You are quite wrong. And so he begins and he ends his answer with this affirmation. Boys, you are wrong. Well, that's not very nice. Why why didn't he establish some sort of think tank to look further into this? Why didn't he affirm the legitimacy of their opinion in the marketplace of ideas? No, the Lord Jesus states it emphatically, unapologetically. You, my friends, are wrong. And here's why you're wrong. He does not leave them hanging. He gives two reasons right there in verse 24. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because it's actually a twofold reason based on their ignorance. You know, firstly... Neither the Scriptures, nor secondly, the power of God. So you are wrong because you are ignorant. You lack knowledge. And here's what you do not know. Two things. You do not know the Scriptures over here. And equally true. You do not know the power of God. That's a bold statement. He must back it up. He must prove it. And so he does in verses 25 through 27. He he unfolds each of those reasons. He begins with the second. They do not know the power of God. He demonstrates what he means in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, so when the resurrection actually occurs, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, the scenario you have presented to me is completely hypothetical. As a matter of fact, it is fanciful. And the reason you don't understand, the reason you are wrong, is because you do not know the power of God. You see, your your, your scenario, your question, is based on a huge assumption, and the assumption is wrong. I don't know where you got this crazy idea, but here's the crazy idea you're basing it on. You think that the afterlife is going to be just like this life. You think... You assume that the resurrection will simply be a continuation of life as we know it now. You are wrong. You do not know the power of God. That just as God created the first heavens and earth by His almighty power, so too God will renew and renovate the heavens and the earth by His almighty power. He is going to renew the cosmos. He is going to introduce a new world 
order. And in that new world order, in that resurrection, in that day that is coming, they will not be given in marriage. They will not marry. You don't understand this. You have this idea of the afterlife almost like it is this life. You don't understand that the resurrection is going to usher in a huge transformation brought about by the power of God. See, but you don't know the power of God. And so you have this silly notion of what the resurrection will be. Therefore, you've come up with this fanciful, hypothetical situation which is not based in reality. Therefore, I tell you again, my friends, you are wrong. They do not know the power of God. But neither do they know the Scriptures. And this is what the Lord Jesus now unpacks in verses 26 and 27. But he faces a real problem here. He faces a challenge. The challenge is this. The Sadducees only hold to a certain part of the Old Testament. Uh, They reject the majority, the vast majority of the books in the Old Testament. And so we read of the coming resurrection, for example, throughout the Psalms. We read of the coming resurrection in the book of Isaiah. Uh, We read of the coming resurrection in the book of Job. We read of it in the book of, of Daniel. We read of it throughout the Old Testament. The problem is this. The Sadducees reject most of the books in the Old Testament. They only accept what Moses wrote as Scripture. They only accept the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy as Scripture. And so what does the Lord Jesus do? He plays their game, and he takes them back to what Moses wrote. They appealed. Moses wrote, and they appealed in their argumentation to the book of Deuteronomy. And so what does Jesus do? Okay, you only accept what Moses wrote. Well, don't you really know or understand what Moses wrote? And he takes him back to the first five, them back to the first five books of the, of, of the Scripture. And look at what we read in the 26th verse. And as for the dead being raised, the resurrection, have you not read? You've appealed to the book of Moses. Well, have you not read in the book of Moses? And now he appeals to a specific passage. In the passage about the bush. What's that? It's Exodus chapter 3. Moses is in the wilderness with his father-in-law's flock, and he's shepherding these sheep. And all of a sudden, he comes across a spectacular sight. There is a bush on fire, but the bush is not consumed. It is a manifestation of the glory of God. And from the midst of this burning bush, God speaks to Moses. And so you Sadducees, my friends, you believe Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And so I'm going to take you back to what Moses wrote to demonstrate that you do not know the Scriptures and therefore you are wrong in your assumptions concerning the resurrection. And let's go right back to that incident involving the bush when God spoke to Moses from the midst of the bush. What did he say right there at the end of verse 26? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. They know that text. Uh, They've memorized that text. There we have the revelation of God's holy name. They are familiar with the book of Exodus. They're familiar with the Exodus. They're familiar with Moses. They're familiar with this incident. They know what Scripture says, but they do not understand it. And in particular... Three details escape their notice. Detail number one is this. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
You go back to the original incident in the Hebrew, as it's recorded in Exodus chapter 3, and there we discover that the divine name in view is Elohim, the one to be dreaded, the powerful one. Do you know when we are first introduced to Elohim in the Bible? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. But Moses, who wrote Genesis 1-1, doesn't leave it at that. He then adds in the same chapter, Elohim created every living creature. But he doesn't leave it at that. He comes to the climax of God's creation. Elohim created man in his image. They've missed it. They have not understood who is in view. Elohim, the creator, the life-giving God. A second detail that has escaped their notice is this. God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. And I am the God of Jacob. When God spoke, uttered that statement to Moses, those three men had already been dead for centuries. Now, closely related to that, the third detail which they have not understood the third detail which has most certainly escaped their notice is the tense of the verb. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He does not say I was their God. He declares to Moses centuries after their death, I still am their God. The implication is what? That the one to be dreaded, the creator of all life, the giver of all life, is the giver of life physical and the giver of life spiritual. If he can speak of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and speak of them as their God, even though they be, they be dead, it implies what? That there is indeed life after death. That there is indeed what? A coming resurrection. And so Jesus draws the conclusion to a head in verse 27. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And then as we've already noted, just for emphasis sake, you are quite wrong. You are quite wrong. They are wrong. Why? Because they are ignorant of two great realities. They do not know the Scriptures. Neither do they know the power of God. With that, we don't hear anything more from the Sadducees. They just sort of fade into the background. And in verse 28, we're on this trajectory, then all of a sudden, off we go into an entirely, completely different incident. With that, they are silenced. Just as Jesus silenced the Pharisees and the Herodians before them, just as he silenced the priests and the scribes and the elders before them, he now silences the Sadducees. What are we to take from all of this? First and foremost, when we look at this encounter between Jesus and the Sadducees, we learn the following. Uh, we see what I, have, what I have called, what I'm going to describe, and I'll unpack this because it might seem a, a, a bit odd to begin with. We see, we behold in this encounter the descent of the theological liberal. Did you catch that? We see the descent of the theological liberal. 
Now, mark my words, I'm not speaking in terms of political liberals or conservatives. I'm not going down that road. I'm not speaking in terms of those who are socially liberal or socially conservative. We are into the realm of theology here, what we believe concerning God. And in this encounter between Jesus and the Sadducees, we behold, we get a a close encounter with the descent of the theological liberal. And so you imagine that cellar maybe you have in your house or basement or whatever, and, and the stairs leading down into the basement or into the cellar, into the storm shelter. And so we have these Sadducees descending, and they illustrate for us the descent of the theological liberal. And in, partic- in particular, we see five steps. These are, this is important. I know this is a little abstract, but it's important for us to grasp this because it is extremely relevant for the situation, the context in which we find ourselves today. Step number one is this. The theological liberal rejects the infallibility of Scripture in every case. The theological liberal rejects the infallibility of Scripture. That is what these Sadducees have done. They've they've quoted from, they have cited the book of Moses, but they do not know the book of Moses. Moreover, they have rejected the rest of the Old Testament. That is the first step in the downward descent of the theological liberal, the rejection of the infallibility of Scripture. Second step is this. The theological liberal, in addition to rejecting the infallibility of Scripture, the theological liberal rejects the miraculous. In essence, rejects the power of God begins to question those miracles in the Old Testament, the the, the sacking of Jericho, the falling down of the wall, the crossing of the Red Sea, the, the, the manna and the quail which descended from heaven, the incarnation of Christ, the virgin birth, Christ's miracles when he, when he walked on the water or calmed the sea or healed the leper. They begin to cast doubt on the power of God and they begin to deny the miraculous. And so we have step number one in this downward decline, this downward descent, the rejection of the infallibility of Scripture. And as we take the next step, we have the rejection of the power of God, the miraculous. Then as we take a third step, we see the rejection or what? Or rather the reconstruction of who Jesus is. The reconstruction of the biblical Jesus. And so Jesus is no longer the Son of God who has come to make atonement for sin. But Jesus is now merely a man, a social reformer, a moral philosopher to be emulated, to be followed, to be esteemed. And then having taken that third step, there is a fourth step in this downward descent of the theological liberal. It is this. They fall into or adopt what we call agnosticism. Agnosticism is simply the belief that there might be truth. Here's our problem. We can't know for certain. And they will cloak this position in humility. They will throw a cloak of of, of supposed humility over this position, over this claim that we can't espouse absolutes. Nobody can be certain about anything. You have your opinion and your position. We have our opinion. We have our position. The Lord Jesus debunks that philosophy in this text when he states twice, you are wrong. In other words, there is a difference between wrong and right. There is a difference between error and truth. There is a difference between bad and good. There is such a thing as moral absolutes. There is such a thing as truth. 
But the theological liberal, he is on this slippery slope downward. He has denied the infallibility of Scripture. He has denied the miraculous, the very power of God, God's omnipotence. He has reconstructed who Jesus is. And now he adopts agnosticism and hides it in this cloak of piety and humility. And then he takes that fifth and final step, which is practical atheism. And he still adheres to the external forms of religion. But in actual fact, he no longer believes in God. Now, why have I bothered to explain all of that? We can't understand American society without understanding all of that. We can't understand where we are at today without grasping this descent of the theological liberal. We have seen it in the seminaries. How do we explain those Ivy League seminaries on the East Coast, which were initially established by the Puritans, to train pastors for the gospel ministry in Reformed churches on the East Coast. And look today at those seminaries and those institutions and what they espouse. How do you explain that? How do we explain great denominations, Reformation-based denominations, mainline denominations where if you were to, if you were to look into their past, you would find creeds, you would find confessions, you would find statements of faith which were faithful to the Word of God, glorious in their espousal of who God is and what the gospel is and what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet today, these denominations have eviscerated their very creeds, their own creeds, their own confessions of any meaning whatsoever. And how do you explain many churches today instituted decades ago, centuries ago, where if we were to enter their doors today and listen to what is preached, we would not hear the Word of God. We would not hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would simply hear some sort of man-centered drivel intended to boost people up and help them live in their daily life, but completely devoid of any biblical truth, wrenched from the Word of God. That's the context in which we find ourselves. And we have it as by way of example here in the Sadducees. You see, the Sadducees, they have taken those first three steps. They end up in agnosticism. They end up in practical atheism. But the Sadducees at this point, they have taken those first three steps. They have rejected the infallibility of Scripture. Uh, they have rejected the power of God, the miraculous They want nothing to do with Jesus as he reveals himself to be the Son of God. They will reconstruct him into something else, but they will not take him for who he claims to be. The next step is agnosticism. The next step is practical atheism. And Jesus makes it clear, and friend, if you fall in this category, please hear the words of the Lord Jesus right now at this very moment. Friend, you are wrong. You are wrong. There is truth. God Almighty has spoken. His word is truth. There is an anchor in the midst of the storm. There is a sure and certain foundation upon which we must build, we must construct. There are answers, concrete answers to the great three philosophical questions. What is good? What is right? What is true? What is beautiful? There are answers to those questions. They are found in the word of God. Because God has spoken. And God has granted to us that word in a written form in the Scriptures, the Bible. And we err. And we end up 
in, in all sorts of, of places. When we take one step from this, this sure and certain way, it, it's actually quite interesting. When the Lord Jesus says to the Sadducees on those two occasions, you are wrong. In the Greek, the word is planeo. Planeo. Sound like anything in the English? We get our word planet from that word. A planet is a wandering body in outer space. You are wrong. You are like planets, he is saying to them. You have wandered from the truth. He is actually saying this. You have detached yourselves from reality. And so we might say to someone today, friend, you're in outer space, right? Friend, you're, you're in, you, I hate to say it, but you are in left field. Or we used to say as kids, look, the light's on, but nobody's home. I ran with a real tough crowd when I was a kid. That's what we, look, the light's on, but nobody's home. Or the elevator doesn't go all the way up. Those are the kind of nasty things we used to say to one another. That's what the Lord Jesus is saying to these Sadducees. You are wrong, planeo. You are a wandering body. You have left the building, is what he is saying to them. You are no longer grounded. You, you have left the realm of reality. And the reason you have left the realm of reality and you are now detached from truth is because you do not know you are ignorant of these two things. One, the Scriptures. And number two, the power of God. Friend, those are the two truths, the two pillars upon which we must build. As a matter of fact, those are the two truths, the infallibility of the Scriptures and the omnipotence and absolute authority of God. Those are the two truths which unlock all reality. Uh, we need to keep that in mind. Our young people need to keep that in mind, uh, especially those who are in the public school system. You need to keep that in mind. Our young people who go off to colleges and uh, secular institutions, oh, you have to keep that in mind. Those who, who bother to watch Oprah Winfrey, you have to keep that in mind. When you listen to CNN, Fox News, I don't care which source of news. You have to keep this in mind. When you read any philosopher or you behold any work of art or you watch any movie, these are all laden with values. They are all espousing what they perceive to be true. But if they are divorced from these two truths, the infallibility of Scriptures and the power of God, I guarantee it, they have left the building. And you are no longer, friend, you are no longer in the realm of reality. You are. You are wrong. That's lesson number one. Second lesson that we learn from this encounter between Jesus and the Sadducees is this. We learn of the importance or the, or the significance, the relevance, the centrality, let's say. The centrality of the resurrection to the Christian faith. The centrality of the resurrection to the Christian faith. This text is not a, an instance of systematic theology. And so it's not Burkhoff's systematic theology or, or Calvin's institutes or anything like that. It, it, it's a narrative and is describing this conversation. And yet in this conversation, as we unpack it, we discover this, do we not? The centrality of the hope of the resurrection to the Christian faith. And I want to affirm five truths concerning the resurrection which emerge from this text. The first is this. Number one, here we go. The resurrection is the renovation of our physical body. Why do I even mention that? For good reason. The resurrection, let me repeat it, is the renovation of our physical body. 
I mention that because sadly, within many Christian circles, perhaps even some here today, when we think of the resurrection, what we have in view is an eternal state of disembodied bliss as we float through the clouds, strumming a harp or some other stringed instrument. And nothing could be further from the truth. The resurrection is the renovation of our physical body. So here's what's going to happen to me. Unless the Lord returns beforehand, one day I'm going to die. And my soul and my body, which constitute humanity, they will be separated. And my soul will go to be with the Lord Jesus and enjoy that beatific vision and find all my fullness and joy and satisfaction in Him. My body will be put in the grave where it will decay and it will rot. But the reality is this. My hope is what? Jesus is coming back. And as we confessed publicly, as we were singing earlier out of Romans chapter 8, the fact that the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, and he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, fact number one. Fact number two, that the Holy Spirit now dwells in us, conclusion is what? That if the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit of power now dwells in us. We have this absolute certainty of what? That when Jesus comes back, he will raise us from the dead. There will be discontinuity. Our bodies will be transformed. They will be like his glorified body. But there will also be some continuity. We will be recognizable. We will be knowable. That is our hope. That is the resurrection. It is the renovation of our physical body. Truth number two is this. The resurrection is either unto life or condemnation. These words are of Daniel chapter 12. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So far, so good. But listen to what is added there. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so, yes, the resurrection is for everyone. Uh, The renovation of our physical bodies, uh, the reunification of our bodies and our souls at that coming day, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the renovation of the entire cosmos. Yes, that is going to happen. But understand this, that that resurrection is either unto everlasting life, bliss, or it is unto everlasting contempt and shame and condemnation. Jesus himself states it clearly in Matthew chapter 7, that portion of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 13 and 14, somewhere around there. He tells us that there are two destinies. And so we have destiny number one over here. Two, let me rephrase that, two distinct eternal destinies. And so we have the first eternal destiny over here. It is life, everlasting life. And he tells us there is a second destiny over here. It is everlasting condemnation. It is everlasting destruction. And then he makes it clear in that portion of the Sermon on the Mount that there are two distinct ways, paths, which lead to these two distinct eternal destinies. There is a narrow way. There is a difficult way which leads to everlasting life. There is a broad way, a wide way, an easy way. And many there are who find it which leads to everlasting destruction. And then he makes it clear that this narrow way, straight way, difficult way, which culminates in everlasting life, is entered into through a narrow door, a very narrow opening. 
and few there are who find it. What is it? It's the cross. It is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this wonderful truth, this wonderful reality that the Son of God became man. That the Son of God, having become man, fulfilled all righteousness as he lived on this earth, obeying his Father perfectly. That the Son of God, who became man, then offered himself at Calvary's cross on behalf of his people, where our sin was imputed and reckoned to him, and he bore the wrath of God in full. That having been punished, he was then buried. Having been buried, he then rose again. Having risen again, he ascended on high and has been coronated at the right hand of his Father in glory. The cross is the central, central point to this message. This is the narrow gate which leads to a narrow way. And why is it so narrow? It is so narrow for this reason. We can barely squeeze through it. And to squeeze through it requires us to do what? Lose everything. It requires us to throw off everything. No excess baggage is going to fit through here. It is a straight and narrow way. Why? Because it describes the man. It describes the woman. It describes the boy. It describes the girl who understands their sinfulness in God's sight, understands they do not bring anything to the table. They bring nothing of their own. They bring nothing that is worthy of merit. It is complete and utter self-denial and abandonment. And as we sang earlier, they simply cling to the cross of Christ. That is a narrow gate which leads to a narrow way which culminates in everlasting life. Third truth concerning the resurrection is this. The hope of the resurrection infuses life with meaning. Let me repeat it. The hope of the resurrection infuses life with meaning. Sadly, at times when we speak of the resurrection, people can accuse us of being too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Oh, it's all pie in the sky. You're living in the future, but you need to live in the present. That, 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 but by focusing on the resurrection uh, and something in the future, life loses meaning. In actual fact, friend, the opposite is true. It is the hope of the resurrection which gives meaning to life now. It is the hope of the resurrection which imparts, I love the word, infuses meaning into life now. Leo Tolstoy, Russian, uh, maybe a century ago, uh, he wrote in his memoirs, I think he entitled it his confessions, wrote the following. Listen to these words carefully. He said, my question, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live. What was it? He states, Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? That's the question of all questions. Is there any meaning in my life right now that the inevitability of death, that death awaiting me, does not destroy? 
You see, friend, apart from the hope of the resurrection, this life is an absurdity. Right? It's just a fabrication of our own imagination, fanciful thinking. Without the, the prospect of eternal life, eternality, without the prospect of a resurrection, without the prospect of a renovation of the heavens and the earth, it simply means, therefore, that we are trapped between two poles of meaninglessness. It means our very existence, our relationships, our marriages, uh, all that we do, all that we set our hands to, perishes with death and is of no ultimate nor eternal consequence whatsoever. Let me repeat Tolstoy's question. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder, it was a question without an answer to which one cannot live. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Bertrand Russell said the following, We stand on the shore of an ocean, crying to the night and the emptiness. Sometimes a voice answers out of the darkness, but it is the voice of one drowning. And in a moment, the silence returns. Ernest Hemingway wrote the following. I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there is no current to plug into. Where there is no hope of the resurrection, we can live in denial. But if we are thinking beings, we are only left with one philosophical position, posture. It is that of despair arising from the absolute absurdity of life, our very existence. You see, friend, we, you and I right now, we were not made for hours. We were not made for days. We were not made for weeks. We were not made for months. We were not made for years. We were not made for decades. We were not even made for centuries. We were made for eternity. And life is meaningless apart from the very hope of eternal life, the resurrection. You know, Jesus, it's wonderful. He points us, and it is subtle, but it is there. He points us to that in this text. You know how? By, by espousing a truth that maybe shocked some of us when we first heard it. Uh, he affirms in this text, right here in Mark chapter 12, what? That marriage is momentary. Till death do us part? It is, folks. That may shock some of us here. Well, I thought we were going to hold hands for all eternity. No. It is till death do us part. Marriage ends in the grave. There is no marriage in the resurrection in eternity. Why? Because marriage serves a wonderful function and purpose in the plan of redemption. Serves several. I'm only going to mention one. What is it? It is a visible proclamation of the gospel. The union that exists between husband and wife, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, points to what? The union that exists between Christ and his bride, the church. And so in the marriage relationship where the husband gives himself for his wife, his wife willingly and lovingly submits to her husband, and these two enjoy that union, that great gift as designed by God, that couple is actually proclaiming the gospel and is pointing to a far greater reality the relationship between Christ and the church. In the resurrection, we enter into the fullness of that relationship between Christ and the church. Christ becomes our all in all. 
and marriage no longer serves the purpose nor function for which it was instituted. You see, friend, there is something far greater coming. There is a new cosmos, a new world order, a new heaven and earth which will dawn, which will be instituted, implemented, created by the living God. And it will far eclipse this life. This life is merely the prelude to eternity. Do we get that? This life is merely the prelude to eternity. And it is the hope of the resurrection which infuses life with meaning. The fourth truth is this. The hope of the resurrection curbs the allurements of the flesh. The hope of the resurrection curbs the allurements of the flesh. This world is alluring. And as we walk along as as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there there are many things in this world which can and do easily sidetrack us. I think I gave this illustration a couple of months ago of ballast in a ship. That in order to keep a ship upright in the ocean, in the sea, or even on a lake, it it needs to be weighted low down in the middle in order to keep it upright in the water. Without ballast, it will tip over. It has no hope when the wind rises or when the waves assail it. No hope whatsoever. It requires ballast in order to stay afloat upright in the water. The hope of the resurrection, Christian, is ballast. That's what it provides. Without the hope of the resurrection, we're like a ship without ballast. And this world, with all of its allurements, will draw us this way and pull us this way. We'll find ourselves running after wealth, or we'll find ourselves seeking after power, or we'll find ourselves being allured away by honors and by glory, or we'll find ourselves being tugged by pleasure, and we'll find ourselves being pushed here and pulled there. What we need is ballast, something to keep us upright, and is the hope of the resurrection. It is what Moses himself knew to be true. Moses, to whom God spoke those words, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. I think Moses had an inkling as to what God was saying. And Moses, as he was faced with Egypt and the sins and the pleasure of Egypt, what did he conclude in his mind? That The passing pleasure of sin was nothing to be compared to the reward. Friend, if you're struggling with sin habitually, and you find yourself just dragged down. You find yourself just pulled and stretched this way, that way, and you're chasing after so many things except the only thing that really matters. What you need is a good dose of the hope of the resurrection. And understand that this life is going to give way to eternity. And naked we came into this world. And guess what, friend? Naked we will leave this world. We will take nothing with us. And all that this world values, all that this world glories and revels in, all that this world highly esteems, all that this world rests its hope upon, what is it destined for? It is destined for the fire. And so the hope of the resurrection, this hope which we must keep in view and daily remind ourselves, this hope of eternal life, it curbs the allurements of the flesh. And the fifth and final truth we can take from these verses concerning the resurrection is as follows. The hope of the resurrection imparts comfort in life and death. The hope of the resurrection imparts great comfort in life and in death. That word hope, you've heard me say this before, 
extremely important we understand it. We are not speaking of some sort of vain or empty wish. When we use the word hope, we are referring to a confident expectation because it is a hope rooted in the word of God. Hypothetically, a father attends his uh, son's baseball game and he's late, a half hour late or so, and his, uh, his son is in left field. And so he approaches from the fence and calls out to him, hey, junior, how, how's it going? And his uh, son quickly calls over, we're losing 30 nothing, 30 nothing. His father nearly falls over and then quickly recovers and says, well, don't, don't, don't lose hope. Don't be discouraged. To which his son replies, why would I give up hope? We haven't even been up to bat yet. <laughs> For most of us, that is how we think of hope. It is completely empty. It's actually kind of mindless. It is absolutely vain. No, hope, biblical hope, is a confident, absolute expectation. Why? Because it is fixed on the Word of God. The one who is unmovable. The one who is unchangeable. The hope of the resurrection imparts comfort in life and death. The Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is my only comfort? What is my only comfort in life and death? And it answers that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when affliction assails, and when hardship overwhelms, and when death itself overcomes, we find our hope, we root our faith, we rejoice and we fix our hope on this great and wonderful promise that God will indeed raise us from the dead as he raised his son, the Lord Jesus, from the dead. We will see him. We will be like him. And that resurrection will be the start of a renovation of the entire cosmos and the beginning of eternity. Our pain shall then be over. We'll sin and sigh no more. Behind us all of sorrow and naught but joy before. A joy in our Redeemer as we to Him are nigh in the crowning day that's coming by and by. Our Father, with these thoughts we conclude this day. As we contemplate that coming day, as we contemplate that promised resurrection, it does indeed comfort our hearts, encourage our hearts, it strengthens our faith, and it enlivens our hope. We pray that you would help us to fix the eyes of our hearts upon that day and that it might become a present reality. We pray, our Father, that you would cause us and help us to never lose sight of the blood of the Lord Jesus which has purchased our inheritance. The Spirit of God who has sealed us until that day. And may we rest in you. May we seek to live lives worthy of our calling in Christ. In whose name we do ask it. Amen.